0: I got a lot for you today, are you, I don't know, are you up for this? I, okay, alright, uh, take your study guide out of your worship folder. We're wrapping up a series, a four-week series It wraps up today. It's called Fill These Cities, The Game Plan. It's our opening series for 2020. We've been kind of laying out our game plan as a church. What are we trying to do? Our mission and our, our strategy for carrying out our mission And we said that we have a mission here as a church and it's to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. And that's really just our way of articulating the great commission from the lips of Jesus himself to go and make disciples of all nations. And then we've talked about our strategy for doing that, for carrying out the mission. It's very simple and it's three words, reach, train, and send. Reach people with the gospel, train those who believe it deeper in gospel truth and then send them out for the gospel as ambassadors for Jesus. But you see that and you can't help but notice that there's a common thread woven throughout all of that and it's the gospel. It's right there in our mission statement, it's in our reach, train, and send strategy and it kind of begs the question, why? why? Why is New Life Church seeking to center everything we do in the gospel? What makes it so important that it gets center stage around here? Aren't there other good things that our church could be about, someone might say? And then beyond that, some people might have the thought, well, and what is the gospel anyway? So my aim today is to provide some more clarity on the gospel itself, as well as this notion of gospel-centeredness and why reaching and training and sending are all wrapped around the gospel and not something else. For some of you, this is gonna be new. For others of you, this is going to be review especially if you took our New Life class last week. But here's something I've learned. At times, we all need to be reminded of things we already know. Isn't that true? We need to be reminded, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you. So years ago, I came and I preached the good news to you, and now I'm writing you a letter, he said, and I'm reminding you of the gospel, the same message. And so here we go. Here we go. Here's the key truth for today. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ must, 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 must remain front and center in the life of the church. We've got to learn to make distinctives as as discerning people. Some things are worth dying for. Some things are worth fighting about. Some things are worth arguing over, and other things are only worth making a little fuss over, right? This is something to die for. This is something to go to the mat for. It's the gospel that must remain central in the life of the church. This is a deep personal conviction for me, and it's, I believe it's grounded in the scriptures. And so I wanna unpack this a bit today, and there, here are six realities about gospel-centeredness and this church. Number one, New Life Church is seeking to become a gospel-driven church. I don't know if that term is familiar to you. Many of you it is, gospel-driven or gospel-centered. That just simply refers to a church where the leadership and the people, the leadership and the congregation, are very intentional and deliberate about keeping the good news of Jesus Christ central in the life of the church. That's what it means to be gospel-centered or gospel-driven. It means we want the gospel, more than anything else, to be our primary passion means we want the good news of Jesus to be the driving force behind all of our teachings, all of our ministries, outreaches, even all of our decisions. means we aim to make the gospel the thing that shapes the culture of the church more than anything else. So we have a little diagram that our graphic artists put together a number of years ago, and I think it depicts this very well. And at the center, you see there the gospel. It's in the center to show that it's the gospel that we want to be the focal point the centerpiece of our life as a church family. The th- three circles that intersect it represent three ways the gospel influences us, three ways, three dimensions, I guess you could say, that the, of the gospel's influence on us and how we want it to shape our culture here. So at the top is identity. And we talk around here about gospel-shaped identity, letting this message of Christ form in our minds how we think about ourselves so that we don't have to be captive to the self-image that was foisted upon us by the people who spoke into our lives at an early age. We're not captive to that, to what our our parents even, or teachers and coaches spoke into our lives, or our peers in middle school, what they thought about us. We're not captive to that, right? We believe in what God says about us is the truest truth about us. Gospel-shaped identity instead of being defined by our past failures or our past successes, the gospel prescribes for us a new identity free from shame and free from pride Mm -hmm. that is based on God's unconditional love. And so it is the gospel that reveals that those who've entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ now have a new identity. God calls us saints, holy ones. He calls us sons and daughters of the Most High God, members of his eternal forever family, amen? Amen. This is good news, this is why we sing worship songs to Jesus, because he's done this for us that no one else could do. He calls us a new creation in Christ. He calls us forgiven, slate wiped clean. He calls us justified, righteous in his sight. We're now worshipers, disciples, Missionaries, ambassadors sent into this world To represent Jesus This is our new identity in Christ The gospel shapes our identity And as we discard all of those false identities That were spoken into us earlier on in our lives As we discard those lies And come to believe what our Savior says about us Our identity becomes more and more anchored In the truest truth about us You see the truest truth about you Is what God says about you Not what your coach said about you or your teacher. One man said the gospel shapes its containers. And that's true of us because the gospel resides in us so it shapes us, it shapes how we see ourselves. And we must learn to see ourselves as God sees us. That's a core value around here. The gospel shapes its containers, it shapes us as individuals. Something else that it shapes is our community together. And so we talk about how the gospel forms our community together, how we relate to one another in this body of Christ, and in short, it makes us family. When we believe the good news, we are adopted into the family of God, and so we are now brothers and sisters in the family of God. And I'm convinced as this gospel seeps deeper and deeper into our souls, we're gonna see certain qualities emerge more and more in our community of grace here. Things like kindness. Kindness, because God has been kind to us in Jesus. Grace, treating each other with grace. Patience, because God has been patient with us. Transparency and openness with each other, willingness to show and share our flaws and faults and sins. Why? Because the worst about us has already been put on public display. Jesus nailed to a cross for our sins. And so we're freed up to be able to reveal our true selves to one another. We're gonna see more and more of that. We're gonna see forgiveness granted to each other. Why? Because we've been forgiven in Christ. We're gonna see reconciliation, selfless service. All of those things come to us and in us because the gospel is getting down into our bones. And it's forming and shaping this community that we get to be a part of. That's why we're challenging you to get in a group during the month of february to get a taste of gospel community no it won't be perfect it'll be messy probably but we all need at least a taste of it it'll only be perfect when we're all around the table the father's table in heaven then it'll be perfect so the gospel shapes our identity it forms our community together and then it propels us out beyond these walls on mission with jesus and we call that gospel driven mission that's, this is the sin that we talked about last week, right? When Jesus said, even as the Father has sent me, now, so now I am sending you to go and love your neighbors and even your enemies in my name. So in a church that's seeking to be centered in the gospel, the leadership and the people are intentional about preaching the gospel to ourselves all the time and reminding ourselves of it. We want it to sink down deep and shape us and send us. In short, I guess you could say we want God to create a gospel culture around here. And we have a part in that happening. First point, new life is seeking to become a gospel-driven church. Some people might hear that and think, well, duh, it's a church, right? Isn't that what churches do? Which is a beautiful lead-in to my second point, which is that churches can become driven by many things other than the gospel, even many good things. It's true, you know this, if you've been in church for any length of time, many different things will compete for center stage in the life of a church throughout its lifespan. For example, it's pretty easy for a church to become personality-driven. Some churches are not gospel-driven, they're personality-driven. That's when there's this, this dynamic, charismatic, gifted leader who stands up and says, well, here's what I'm passionate about, and everybody else goes, well, then that's what we're into too. It's just the sheer... Magnetism of, of their personality Brings that about There are personality driven churches There are churches that are driven by tradition Tradition driven churches Where the prime agenda is to ensure That all of the time honored traditions Are being preserved Don't try to introduce any new ideas In a tradition driven church Because they've always done it a certain way there are churches that are driven by a certain program. You know, they they created a new program back in 1974 and they can let that program and the people who run it drive the agenda of the church, drive the budget of the church. That's a program-driven church. There are churches that are driven by their building, their facilities. If you have cool, modern, new facilities or maybe meet in a historic church building, that can become the focus. It's easy to, easy to let showcasing our building be the priority that drives the agenda of the church. You get the idea here? There are many different things that can vie for the spotlight in a church. Many of them are good things. They're fine. But we've become convinced here that none of those things, none of them should be allowed to displace Jesus and his gospel message as the centerpiece of the life of this church. He's the priority that should transcend all other agendas. He's the passion that who should captivate our affections more than anything else, the driving force behind everything we do. So, seeking to become driven by the gospel. All of this gospel talk kind of begs the question, though, doesn't it? What is the gospel? And maybe somebody hears that and says, Steve, I know the gospel. I don't need you to review that with me. That was nursery school stuff. I get it. But I have learned... In my years in ministry, now, not ever to assume the gospel. Not ever to assume that everybody knows what the true gospel is. I heard this once what gets assumed in one generation gets forgotten in the next generation and denied in the next generation. So we should never assume the gospel. Number three, the gospel is the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did. The word gospel, many of you know, means what? Good news, good news. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through his son Jesus to save humanity from sin, to establish his reign, King Jesus, right, his reign over all things, and ultimately to restore all of creation to its original design. And notice that the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's news to be heard Not instructions to be followed Yes, the gospel has implications For how we should live our lives for sure But at its core The gospel is a message to be heard And believed And internalized And rejoiced in It's not a list of rules to obey Let me say that again The gospel is not a list of rules to obey That's not what the gospel is Now When you look into the scriptures, there's not just one correct way to tell the gospel. There's not just one correct formulation of the good news. It's like a diamond. And years ago, I held up a diamond in here. It was not a real diamond. It was a big glass diamond. And it has lots of facets to it to marvel at and to be fascinated by. The gospel, I like to say, is like an ocean. And there's shallow waters where little children can dip their toes in Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so and then there's the deep waters that you can spend a lifetime exploring I do believe you could say that in a word the gospel is Jesus it's the news about Jesus of Nazareth who he is and what he has done who is Jesus Well, that's like a 42-week sermon series, right? (laughs) He's a lot of things. Jesus was the one who came to us from heaven as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, right? The promised one. The Old Testament created this expectation that one day God was going to send a man from heaven to earth to represent heaven to earth A man who would come here and set things right, who would make crooked things straight, who would solve mankind's biggest problem, sin. As Alan taught us a few weeks ago, this one would come to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. Jesus came to bridge that gap. You know what? When Jesus of Nazareth came on the scene 2,000 years ago over in the Middle East, he said, I'm that one. I'm the one the Old Testament was pointing to, was promising. It's me. He was unashamed to say that. I want to give you four words today that define who Jesus is. There's a thousand words that define who he is. Let me give you four that start with R, in hopes that you'll remember them well. Okay, Jesus is the Redeemer, the Reconciler, and the Ruler and the Restorer. The Gospel is the good news that after centuries of waiting, a redeemer was sent from heaven to earth. The word redeem means to purchase out of slavery, to pay the price for someone to be freed out of slavery, and of course the Bible says that humanity is enslaved to sin. And so we needed a redeemer, and Jesus came to be the one who redeemed us, and the purchase price, of course, was his own shed blood. Jesus came to be our reconciler. We know what, what a mediator is or a reconciler. They, they take two parties who are apart, two parties who are estranged, and a reconciler brings them together, right? And so Jesus took the hand of a holy God in one hand and the hand of sinful humanity in the other and brought us together, he reconciled us to God through his death, burial, and resurrection. He was the redeemer, the reconciler. He also is a ruler, he comes to reign, if you invite Jesus into your life, he's not gonna be your secretary, he's not gonna be your personal assistant, he's gonna be your king. He comes to reign, he reigns graciously, but he reigns, and one day he will reign over the whole world, which many of us are looking forward to. And it says he is the restorer. Oh, isn't that a good word, restore? The, the word restore means to take something that's been torn and mend it. How many of our lives, How many of, is that, that's a picture of, of our lives, right? Torn. To take something that's broken and fix it. Jesus is the restorer, and one day he's gonna restore all of God's creation to its original design. Eden returned. Paradise returned. The tree of life is in Genesis 1 and 2, and you read to the end of the book in Revelation 21, 22, there's the tree of life again. God's gonna give us a new heavens and a new earth. It's gonna be a suitable dwelling place for all of God's family to dwell in together forever. Mm -hmm. This great rescuer, reconciler, ruler, restorer was none other, the Bible tells us, than God's own son who humbly took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died in our place as our substitute, rose from the grave to an indestructible life gospel announces to us that Jesus now offers forgiveness of sin pardon eternal life membership in his family ultimately he offers himself that's the ultimate gift of the gospel he offers himself to anyone who will repent of their sins and put their full trust and faith in him to entrust your life to Jesus is to receive eternal life The gospel the bible says is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes it everyone and anyone Isn't that good news romans 1 so you see the good news is a person jesus and it is work the person and work of jesus and when bible scholars talk about the work of jesus they're not talking about his carpentry work in his father's shop although i'll bet he made some awesome furniture Now they're talking about the things that are listed there on your outline. The work of Jesus in saving us, descending from heaven to earth, becoming incarnated as a human being, getting in our skin, becoming one of us. The work of Jesus in keeping God's holy law, the only one who ever has. The only perfect person. His work of ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, ministering to the whole person, right? Physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. The core of the gospel is, of the gospel's work is that he died a sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross. That means he took your place, he took my place. Who should be punished for your sins? Who should be judged for your sins? You should. I should be judged for my sins. And yet one came who had no sin of his own who was able then to take my judgment for me, serve my sentence for me. He's my sacrificial, substitutionary savior. And that's the core of the gospel. And of course, he rose from the grave, thank God. Three days later, sent it back up into heaven, sending his spirit to empower his church. Presently he intercedes for his people. He's our defense attorney. He's our advocate against the accusations of Satan when Satan comes to the Father and says, Look at that guy down there. What a sorry excuse for a Christian he is. And Jesus steps in and says, I paid for all of his sins. He's righteous in my sight. Go back to hell, Satan, where you belong. And he promised to return one day as king over all. Listen, this is the message that must, must, must remain at the heart of the life of New Life Church. It must. The person and work of Jesus Christ, no other message can save. No other message can transform people. Yeah, many different priorities and agendas can drive a church, but only one should. A variety of teachings can be given, but none of them should eclipse this one. Now this is where it gets even more interesting. Number four, the gospel is the third way. Which kind of raises the question, what are the other two? (laughs) The scriptures consistently reveal two common paths, stay with me on this, okay? Two common paths that human beings take to try and achieve salvation whatever that idea is in their mind, to try to live a heavenly life and avoid a hellish existence. Two roads that humans take to try to get acceptance, approval, meaning, significance, happiness, the things we all crave. Two ways, two paths. One is religious legalism, the other is rebellious license. One is keeping the rules, the other is breaking the rules. There are billions of people on each of these two paths. Let's talk about religious legalism for a few moments. I can speak with some authority on that one because I was on that path for a long time. I was a church kid. I grew up in church. It was all about doing the right thing to be a good Christian. Keeping the rules. Religious rule keeping, moral conformity, external compliance with the law. Really, this is the path of self-righteousness. Taking the path of religious legalism is all about trying to earn God's acceptance, to earn his favor through being good, through performing well, through our own effort. The motto is, if I perform well, then God will accept me. When you think about it, this is the way of the older brother in that story Jesus told about two lost sons. You know, we, t- we tend to call it the parable of the prodigal son. but There were two sons in that story And the reason there are two sons is because there are two ways and each son represents one of those ways. So this is the way of that older son, that older brother, the kid who who felt, I've been the good kid, (laughs) right? I didn't do what Junior did. I stayed here. I took on his chores and I deserve better treatment than what I'm getting from my father right now. If you know the story. This is the way of the rich young ruler. That young man who came to Jesus one day and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Interestingly, Jesus gave him the law. He said, well, you know the commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness. And the guy said, I've done those since I was a kid. Check, 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 check. What else you got for me? That's the way of religious legalism, self-righteousness. I'm doing the stuff, I'm doing the stuff. I'm good enough for God. This was the path, the way of the religious Pharisees, right? They were really the poster children of this path, of religion, of legalism. They sought the approval of God and the praise of man. How? Through their rigorous efforts to keep the law. Those who are on this path are usually people who are very image conscious. They're all about polishing their image, making sure they look good in front of other people. They often show very little grace to other people. Religious rule keepers tend to be proud. They're always comparing themselves with other people. When they walk into a room, that's how they think. Where am I in the pecking order here in this room? They're usually judgmental. They feel superior to other people. They look down on those who don't meet up to their standards. They tend to believe, listen, they tend to believe that God owes them a happy life because of how good they've been. And when life turns out other than what they expected, they often become disenchanted with God because their gospel is a transactional gospel. I do this, 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 and this, and you do this, 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 and this for me, which is not the true gospel. This is the path of pride, but interestingly, it often leads to despair. Listen, this path, this road is littered with the corpses of bitter, worn out people who wearied of having to be good all the time and they just stopped trying. It's exhausting. This is that performance treadmill that we've talked so much about through the years. Let me ask, is religious rule-keeping the way to true salvation? Not according to Jesus. No, no. In fact, think about things Jesus said to the Pharisees, the, the poster kids for this. Didn't he say to them, You're going to hell, you snakes. I mean, he reserved his harshest words for these folks, the religious rule keepers. Does that jolt you a little bit? Does that unsettle you a little bit? This is the broad road of performance-based religion. And there's billions of people on this road hoping it leads to salvation. Then there's the other path rebels rebellion religion rebellion legalism license keeping the rules breaking the rules complying with the law casting off the law i do the right thing i do whatever i want (laughs) nobody tells me what to do i'm my own authority that's what the rebellious person does this is the path of personal autonomy I'm free to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, don't get in my way, I know what'll make me happy. This is about seeking salvation, a heavenly life, through expressing personal freedom. It's really the way of hedonism. It's unbridled pleasure-seeking, it's narcissistic. This is the way of the prodigal, right? The younger brother, dad, give me what's coming to me, I'm out of here, I'm sick of living under your rules. I see the bright lights of the big city over there, I'm out of here. I know where to find happiness. Like that young guy, rebellious rule breakers think they deserve better. They indulge their appetites, they use people for their own ends, they spurn authority, they avoid suffering at all costs, they ignore consequences of their choices. To heck with the future, I'm living for now, baby. They ignore the one true God. They esteem their own personal autonomy above everything else. Really, their God is themselves. Does this path lead to salvation, freedom, acceptance, approval? Many people from personal experience would testify no. I was talking to a person last night about this and we were talking about the fact that at different points in your life, you might be on one or the other of these paths. Some people grew up in church, they did the religious thing, you know, in their teens and early 20s maybe, and finally they got worn out and said, heck with this. Then they went the other way. Like, I want to see what's out there, you know? <laughs> Looks pretty enticing out there. And then, you know, when that, when that wears them out, when the money's gone or whatever, you know, then they're like, maybe I need to check out this again, you know, and so some people have been on both paths. But listen, this path, the rebel lifestyle, often leads to guilt, shame, emptiness, frustration. Remember how the the kid ends up, he's in, the money runs out, right? The the girl, where the girls go? They're gone. And he finds himself in a pig pen, chewing on a corn cob, thinking, what in the world? My dad's servants have it better than me. Frustration, emptiness, the freedom that it promises is short-lived. It leaves you far from the Father. And if you never get off that road, it'll leave you separated from him forever. But This path is also popular, isn't it? Billions of people on this path. Now this is interesting, note this, both legalism and license, though they appear to be opposites, opposites they're actually very similar, right? How so? Both of them are attempts at self-salvation. Both are self-salvation projects. They're both trying to gain acceptance from God and from others through doing stuff themselves, whether it's this path or this path. Pharisees attempt to gain it through moral exertion and self-restraint. Prodigals attempt to gain it through personal autonomy and freedom, but the Bible is clear that both legalism and license are doomed to fail. Both religion and rebellion as belief systems as philosophies of life, they both seriously overpromise and they both seriously under-deliver. And both paths lead people far from God. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He said, It surprises many to discover in the Bible that there are actually two kinds of lostness, two ways to be far from God. Isn't that interesting? Religion and rebellion. And so... Since both of these ways fail, we need what? A third way, and thankfully there is one, the gospel, the way of grace. And the gospel tells us that all humans, Pharisees and prodigals, are more sinful than they would ever dare to admit, and they are more loved than they could ever dare to even imagine. That's the message of the gospel. You're worse than you thought And God loves you more than you could ever even dream of. Isn't that beautiful? That's why we sing songs to Jesus. That's why we worship him. The third way is not the way of human ascent, but of God's descent. It's not about our performance for God, but God's performance for us. That's why it says that the gospel both humbles us and exalts us at the same time. It humbles us by revealing we're incapable of living up to God's holy standards. It's too high. But it also exalts us by declaring that God loves us so much that he came down himself to solve our biggest problem. The result, listen, the gospel humbles the religious rule keeper, which is what they need. The gospel humbles the religious rule keeper by declaring he could never be good enough to earn God's favor And the gospel gives hope to the rule-breaking rebel by telling him he can never be bad enough to be outside the reach of the grace of God. This is good news for all of us, for all of us. Listen, the call of the gospel is not behave. You better behave better. The call of the true gospel is behold, the Lamb of God who takes away all of your sins. The call of the gospel is not do. Do better, do more, stop doing bad stuff. The call of the gospel is done. It is finished. It's not try to do better. It's repent and trust in Jesus. It's not you better perform or you won't be accepted. It's Jesus performed perfectly for you, so by believing in him, you are accepted. Yes, the gospel, I know some of you are squirming a little bit, the gospel does promote obedience. Yes, it does promote moral living, but not as a duty, not as an obligation in order to try to earn something or get something from God. Rather, the gospel motivates obedience out of what? Gratefulness. Out of gratefulness. It causes morally upright behavior to flow from the new affections of a new heart that wants to obey, that delights in pleasing the Lord. Do you want to please the Lord? Do you want to please the Lord? If if you say yes to that, that's that's the fruit of a heart that's been melted by the gospel. That's why John would write, his commands are not burdensome to me. I love obeying Christ. I love it. So can you see that the gospel succeeds where the other two ways fail? Religion doesn't cut it. Rebellion won't give you the life you want. A third way is needed, the gospel is it. It's God's way, it's the better way and Jesus said it's the only way, the only way. Number five, here's another startling reality, at least it was for me. Number five, the gospel is for both non-Christians and Christians. I wasn't really taught to think like this. I grew up in church, I was a church kid. The idea I kinda got growing up in church was this, the gospel, the message of Jesus, is what you need to believe to be saved and go to heaven and get, get forgiven, and that's true. But I also kinda got this idea that once you are saved, now you leave this behind. You say goodbye to those elementary truths and then you get into the real work of growing in Christ and the spiritual disciplines and the holy habits and those kinds of things. You leave the gospel behind in order to grow. That's the notion I got in church growing up and I don't believe that anymore. I've said goodbye to that notion. Yes, the gospel is the message that must be believed in order to be saved, but as believers then, we don't leave it behind like that was kindergarten and now we're moving up to higher grades. I've come to love these quotes. Maybe they'll come up on the screen, I don't know. We'll see. The gospel, Tim Keller says, is not just the ABCs of Christianity. Not just the ABCs of Christianity It's the A to Z of Christianity My favorite quote of all time From C.J. Mahaney The gospel is not just one class Among many that you'll attend During your life as a Christian The gospel is the whole building That all the classes take place in Rightly approached All the topics you will study And focus on as a believer in Jesus Will be offered to you Within the walls of the glorious gospel It's the whole building And there's a lot to learn. And as Milton Milton Vincent said, the gospel is for Christians too. Christians need to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. I've come to believe that both lost people and believing people need to regularly hear what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Why? Because out there, it's all about your performance, right? If you perform well, you'll be accepted. If you don't perform well, you won't. And the gospel's like this countercultural foreign language that says Jesus performed perfectly for you. You can rest in him. I need to hear that often. It's the fuel. It's the fuel for a heart that wants to obey Christ. It's the engine. It's the only engine that won't conk out in this marathon of life. I've seen the power of the gospel to change people. I've seen it in you. I've seen it in me. We need to hear it often. So take all of this, gather all of this up that I've just said in the last half hour or so. Therefore, number six, the gospel must remain central in the life of our church. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first Importance, what I received. So I'm delivering a message to you. I received it, now I'm delivering it to you, and it's of first importance. How many things can be of first importance? Just one. <laughs> that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. That's the gospel. Four historical events, verifiable history regarding Jesus of Nazareth that have immense theological significance and meaning. Why the gospel, Steve? Why should New Life stay centered on that? Because Paul said it's of first importance. Nothing is more important than the gospel, so nothing should be more important to Jesus' church than keeping the gospel front and center. Why, Steve, why center on the gospel? Well, what was Jesus' main message? Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. What was the main message of the early apostles? Read the book of Acts. The person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what they talked about. Jesus and what he did. Think about this. Jesus gave his church two ordinances to practice until he returns, right? And both of them are pictures of the gospel. Baptism, death, burial, and resurrection. Identifying with Christ in that and the Lord's table, communion, where the elements represent the crushed body and the spilled out blood of Jesus. And we felt it appropriate on, with this message to observe communion today. So actually right now, if you're a, a pair or a couple that's serving communion, you can come on up and get your tray and start making your way to your place in the room. Like right now. Hey, we have a church motto here, and some mottos of churches can be kinda cheesy, right? Uh, People send me these things, pictures of church signs that has some really lame logo or lame slogan on it. But we have one here, we hope it's not cheesy or lame, and it's Jesus front and center all the time. Jesus front and center all the time. And I, I like to remind all of us that here at New Life, we're not trying to make a celebrity out of any human being. That's a bad idea always goes south. We want to keep the only perfect one on the pedestal, right? We want to fix our eyes on Jesus. Amen. Listen, it's not that we can't talk about other important life issues. It's not that we can't talk about marriage and parenting and dealing with stress. It's not that we can't talk about worry and anxiety and how to navigate those things in our lives. It's not that we can't talk about finances. We can talk about all of those things and we do, but we have a certain lens on. We're looking to see how those things connect with what happened on that hill 2,000 years ago because there is a connection. It's called a gospel connection. Over the years, I've recommended two books. Well, these are probably in my top five, but I, along those lines, if you're like, how in the world does what happened 2,000 years ago on a hill affect my marriage or parenting or my kids or stress or whatever? I would recommend these two books to you. One is called The Gospel-Centered Life. That's the green cover one. And the other one is called, it's a horrible title, A Gospel Primer for Christians. The brown cover. I would recommend both of them to you. They're they're not 400 pages. They're small reads. They will help you understand how to think gospelly. Okay? How to connect all of life with Jesus and him crucified, buried, risen, and ascended into heaven. So I've latched on to a a personal slogan that I heard many years ago. You've heard it before, and it's this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Amidst all of the competing voices and issues that are clamoring for our attention, we must keep our eyes fixed on the main thing. We must keep the main thing as our main thing. And I would say this, the gospel will not be central in the life of this church unless or until the gospel becomes central in the hearts of the people of God, the individual people of God, right? And so as we prepare now to partake of communion, I would challenge us as individual members of this body of believers to repent to repent of allowing other things in our lives to crowd out the main thing in our hearts. Is that only true of me? Does anybody else in this room let other things crowd out the main thing? And so I call upon myself and I call upon you to repent of that, to turn away from that, to say, Jesus, that is so wrong. And thankfully, you died on the cross to forgive me of even this sin. And I confess it to you. I repent of it. And let us resolve today anew and afresh to be enthralled first and foremost by the good news of Jesus to keep the main thing as our main thing. You've heard of John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. He was a converted slave owner. He was talking to somebody once about this. He said, look, I know two things sure. Well, number, number one, I am a great sinner. And number two, Jesus is a great Savior. And that's the good news in a nutshell. And that's the main thing.